uh, this is one of my soapboxes as an economist, is that when technology changes, it causes a lot of people that were uncomfortable about using something before to suddenly say, look at my ethics, I am doing something better. When the reality is it's, it was cheaper and more efficient, and that's why they did it, or they would have done it before. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to at least a relatively exciting second hour, at least as exciting as the first hour. If if you had your heart rates go up and you were cheering and jumping up and down in the first hour from the excitement, you may want to check your meds. <clears throat> Doing my best, but... You know, this is the dreary science, the dismal science. Uh, I think it's fascinating. I think it's amazing. This is the personal wealth coach. And uh, the personal wealth coach is not just the name of this program. And the guy talking to you, Jake McClure, is not only a, a radio talk program host. The personal wealth coach is also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. Now, what does that mean? Um, when you have a certain amount of money that you're advising on, they require you go to the national or federal level rather than the state level. That's all it means. It's a regulator. Um, it's the firm, the personal wealth coach is registered as an investment advisor, which means that we give fiduciary investment advice. And that means that we really need to know the person we're talking to. We need to understand their position Oh, what they what their opinions are and what they're trying to achieve, then we have to have expertise in the area that we're giving it the advice in. So that's a lot. And it's totally impossible to know everybody that's listening to me on the radio right now. I wish I could. Uh, it, I, I would very much like to be sitting there wherever you are. You probably wouldn't want the bald guy with the beard to be sitting with you at this moment, though. Um, I don't know. You're obviously weird if you're listening to me anyway, so maybe you would enjoy my presence. Uh, the uh, SEC doesn't give affirmation, approval, or any other positivity in its registration process. It just says, okay. So no um, hint of their approval should be implied because someone's registered with them. They require us to say something. I don't think they wrote it exactly the way I said it. Maybe... Maybe that they would feel a little bit sad about me saying that they're not into affirmation, but uh, I'm sorry, SEC, if, if that's the case, uh, but you're not into approval at, at any rate. Um, what's next? Uh, we don't pay for this radio program. It's not paid commercial programming. Uh, we do buy advertising on the station for the program, but the studio does as well, if you can call buying from itself buying. Uh, we're in a partnership that's lasted since 1996 with the radio channel. It's been through three, no, two different studio locations and a lot of different owners during that time period. And we're still here for some reason. I don't know if it's because we're just really stubborn. They can't find anybody else to take the slot or you guys like us. Not sure which. Anyway, uh, not paid for. The stuff I'm talking about here come from sources that 
I deem to be reliable, that we have looked at and done research into their their due diligence to make sure that what I'm reporting has at least as much likelihood of being correct as anything reported in the media or statistically. And you'll hear us <laughs> over the years talk about how inaccurate even the most accurate data is. So that's the big uh, disclosures. I'm going to be talking about cryptocurrency and stablecoin and how it's related to banking. Um, yeah, sounds very exciting, but casinos will be involved. Uh, and you may hear me say, hmm, I wonder why they did that uh, at some point in the middle of it or not. You might not hear me say that at all. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, if you have a question specifically on this talk topic, but on any financial topic, the email address in here today is jake at tpwc.com. That's jake at tango, papa, whiskey, charlie, or the personalwealthcoach.com. All right. So this week, we have had some interesting stuff happen in the crypto market. Uh, Stablecoin values dropped. It broke the peg. And we've got all these other words that are less understood by the world than people assume when they hear them and don't understand them. Most people hear that and go, man, I, I don't know what, what you're talking about. And, and they think everybody else does too. The reality is most people don't understand what I just said. Uh, in fact, it's hard for me to think of it that way. What the heck is a cryptocurrency? Most people that own them don't know what they are. Uh, what is a stable coin? Is it a coin? What is it good in earthquakes? No, it's not any of that. So a cryptocurrency, I'm going to take us back a little bit in history. When I was a teenager and into my 20s, I played a lot of video games. Uh, I got so that I was making a decent living playing video games. They would call that a professional gamer today. There wasn't such a thing back then. Well, what was I doing? I was playing online on a big online multiplayer games, massively multiplayer games, millions of people playing. And you go and kill a monster, and that monster would drop some gold on the ground when he died. And if you picked up that gold, you had gold, and you could go buy a sword in the game. Now, that gold, you couldn't buy anything out of the game with it, except that you could. You could sell that gold to another player for real money. Now, at the beginning of all this, that was really frowned on, and the people in the, in the game industry was saying, this is money that we should be getting for, for giving you gold instead of this like secondary market of buying our gold. But the reality is we now have a digital currency that's not a dollar that is priced that people are willing to buy, and that still exists today. One of the major economic uh, advances in gaming is around a game called EVE Online where there's an actual economy built around the game. People buy and sell real estate, and it's kind of like Second World that you've been hearing about, or Meta. Um, it already has existed in multiple versions and smaller forms than what the big companies are talking about today. But that coin, from that gold coin from a video game, had value, even though it's purely a digital asset. You, you could never actually hold it in your hand. It's something you could only use on a game to do something with. So it's a form of entertainment, like buying popcorn at a movie theater. It's gone when you're done with it. It's purely consumable. But you could have, you could 
build a house and sell the house on there? Would you actually ever sleep in the house? No, but you can look at it. So people were doing this. This is what games are. So flash forward a little bit to today, and you can look at cryptocurrencies the same way. Um, it sounds more complicated and less game-like when people say that there's an algorithm being solved and people are mining coins. But the reality is that the algorithm that's being solved, the equation that's being solved, that everybody's trying so hard to do, is purely a puzzle. It has no validity outside of doing the puzzle. It's a game. It's like a crossword puzzle for a computer. And the computers with the fastest processors get there first. So they can make a lot of digital currency. So in making this digital currency, they're awarded the currency, by the way. It's made to award them. It's kind of like when you go to a video game parlor, an establishment. I'll say Chuck E. Cheese, not as a recommendation to buy the stock, but as a place. People know this place. You could go and you can play games and little tickets spew out and you can take these tickets over and buy toys with them. Um, you can't go across the street to McDonald's and buy a hamburger with those tickets. It's a very limited market. Okay, so in the crypto market, you've solved the puzzle and you've gotten a coin and other people will buy it from you, not because they can buy anything internally with it, but because they think it might be more valuable in the future or maybe another store will let them buy with that crypto coin. Um, it's in essence, at that point, as soon as people start using it as a currency, it becomes kind of a banking instrument. When it's being used as a commodity to buy and sell to pri price fluctuations galore, big drops, big rises, uh, it's not good for a currency because you never know what the thing you're buying is worth in the thing you're buying it with because the value of the thing you're buying it with is going all over the place. So it's not a good currency. It's not really a good banking item. Well, then along comes this other concept, since this is taking off so well in the pandemic and before that, you know, cryptocurrency as an item is really amazing. Um, well, why not make something that is more like a bank? So along comes the stable coin. And they say, this is going to be, this is the word peg, pegged to the dollar. So when the dollar goes down, down uh, it'll go down. When the dollar goes up, it'll go up. And if you give us a dollar, we'll give you a dollar back when you sell it to us. So you, you put a dollar on deposit, you get one of these coins, and in the future, you're supposed to be able to bring this coin back and get a dollar for it. Well, what else is this like? If you go to a casino in Vegas, or any casino for that matter, they convert your money into something else. It used to be chips. Uh, you'd have chips, but if you were at the like the slot machines, they'd give you tokens. Now they give it on a little credit card, and they call them credits. But the credit is one credit for one dollar. It's exactly one to one. It's pegged to the dollar. And something interesting about this is that the Nevada Gaming Commission regulates the casinos in a private banking capacity. Because you have to have something on hand to back that credit. If you say you're going to give them a dollar for the credit when they bring it back, you better give it to them. And if you think about it from another perspective, you're at the casino and you're a high roller and you've made all this money and you've got it on credits, you can eat 
at the company restaurants, you can pay for your night stay with those credits. It's currency. You don't even have to convert it back right there. Now, if you go to McDonald's, well, in Vegas, maybe some of the McDonald's actually do take credits, casino chips. Some of them probably do, but there's a limit on where you can spend that stuff. And it isn't, this isn't a new thing by any stretch in any way. Uh, if you go back to the late uh, 19th century and into the 20th century, when unions were really uh, first starting up, there was a good reason for them to start now. And you may, there may be some argument that they may not need to be as strong today. But back then, there was an absolutely good reason for it. People were getting paid with company scrip. What does that mean? A piece of paper or a wooden token that was only good at the company store. So you would go and work for the company and they would pay you in something that you couldn't use anywhere else and they could charge whatever they wanted at the store and you had to buy it with the tokens you had because that's all you had. It's the only place you could buy. So I think most people can understand how that would be a difficult working environment that you can't actually use this for retirement savings or to go to a grocery store that isn't owned by your company to buy anything with. So um, this concept of private banking goes way, way back. And it was official private banking uh, in, in the middle 19th century. Abraham Lincoln um, instituted the office of the comptroller of the currency. A law was passed then to say, hey, we've got $5. And I don't mean you've got five $1 bills or a $5 bill. I mean, there were five different currencies in the United States called the dollar. Five of them. Now, two of, two of the most circulated were the uh, Bank of Louisiana, New Orleans, and the Bank of Chicago in Illinois. And they produced a lot of dollars. But it was a private dollar. It wasn't really regulated by the United States. Weird, isn't it? <laughs> how, how did we protect the currency? I mean... The Treasury Department should have been doing something, right? Well, no, that, that wasn't, I mean, they had their own versions of dollars being printed too. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency said, hey, we have to have a stable marketplace for these things. And you, you can't just print them anytime you want. We have to work out when we would print new money. The stable coin is that. It's every one of these things that I have just said. But we have a tendency to want to regulate private banking because of runs on the bank. Uh, anybody who's seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart's Christmas movie, the, the savings and loan um, that, that is kind of the centerpiece of the whole movie has a run on the bank, a run where they all, everybody comes to take their deposits. And we've seen a series of runs on the bank this week, only they weren't at banks. They were at stable coins, and they weren't called a run on the bank, but that's what they were. When these stable coins say, hey, we've got something of value that we're backing up these coins with. When you give us a dollar, we're going to buy a U.S. Treasury instrument or a bond or something. Well, interest rates are going up. That caused the values of a portfolio of bonds to go down especially if they're not buying really, really short-term loans. So a bank 
has a, a federal bank, a federally backed bank, one that's got FDIC insurance that's regulated by the Federal Reserve, has a reserve requirement where they can't spend all your money. They have to actually have cash on hand, uh, both electronically and physically, so that when you say, hey, I want my money, they can give it to you. And a stablecoin doesn't have a reserve requirement. And if they say, hey, this week we're having less demand for it than usual, let's just, let's invest some of this money for our own benefit. And that's happening at these stable coins. They're actually making a profit because that's what you do when you start a business. <laughs> but what they're making a profit in is like they're trying to rediscover private banking all over again. The Federal Reserve is going to regulate them. Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, has already said, we're going to look at this. The the SEC is trying to regulate cryptocurrencies as a, as a security, but the Federal Reserve is likely going to step in and regulate stablecoins as private banking. Um, is, is it illegal to do private banking? No, it's not. Uh, PayPal has been a private bank for a long time. It doesn't have FDIC insurance. If you make a deposit on Venmo, they may have... FDIC available on some instrument at this point, but it wasn't the last time I looked at it. Uh, SoftBank has private banking. There's a lot of banking institutions that don't claim to be regulated in any federal capacity beyond just the minimum. But PayPal has more regulation than a stablecoin, by far. And so the, all I'm saying in this, in stablecoins this week, man, Terra USD, um, a whole series of them had runs on the bank. Some of them dropped from $1 a coin down into the 20 cents a coin range because everybody ran on the bank at the same time. They all jumped in and said, hey, I need to get my money out. It's not going to be there otherwise. Um, or in the words of Jimmy Stewart, your money's not here. It's in Sam's house. It's uh, my, yeah, I'm not an impressionist. I'm an economist. But it, that's the point is that savings and loans and credit bureaus or uh, um, uh, credit unions, uh, banks, they're in the business to try to keep their employees paid. A lot of times a credit union is, is some form of not-for-profit but they still need to have the ability to pay their employees, which means that they have to charge for their services. And in the stable coin market, they're charging for their services and the amount that they're charging may be more or less than what other banks would be allowed to do. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, uh, of unknowns in there. Like you can't get an audit of a stable coin. You can't say, hey, I want to make sure that you're assets are really there. They can say, well, no. If you go to a bank and you say, hey, I'd like to see uh, some form of auditing, uh, they can point you to the right documents. There's disclosure documents that say who audits them and whether they're on the up and up or not, and the Federal Reserve audits. And so there's a lot of documentation you can do to make sure that a bank is safe. Why? Well, because a lot of banks weren't safe for a very long time. A lot of banks have failed over the years. Uh, in Texas, we had the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s through the 90s, uh, where almost every bank, not just savings and loan, but almost every local bank in Texas failed. Uh, 
only a few of them did not. And we've had these sweeping banking failures throughout history. So eventually we say, all right, we have to regulate this. These banks have to be regulated. And then somebody comes up with a new way of being a bank without being a bank. So do your due diligence there. A lot of people say, have told me, I've heard this so many times from musicians and other um, people that are either trying to make it or have just made it, that they're, they've switched all of their assets over to Venmo or to PayPal. And I warn them immediately, that's probably not a great idea. It's not a good place to keep large amounts of money in reserve. What kind of insurance coverage is it is, is on there in case of failure? And they say, what? That's not, that's not going to, Venmo's not going to fail. PayPal's not going to fail. I've heard people say that about a lot of companies that failed. So I, I am very much, particularly in cash positions, believe in them being stable and insured and, and carefully counted to make sure that it's a safe place to be. Uh, your reserves, this is personal finance 101. The number one priority is the safety of your personal savings. It's why it's called savings. It's safe to save or to safe it. It means to exactly that. You're not trying to make money on it. You can get some interest sometimes, but it's probably a lot less than inflation. It's not what it's for. It's for short-term emergencies. It's for short-term purchases that you've had planned. It's not to make a lot of money. So when you're getting into stable coins, um, and this is an area that I was at a conference virtually um, in in March, and the conference was talking about um, how to use cryptocurrency in at the Wall Street level, and and they were talking that it wasn't the only speaker speaker at the conference, but this was one of them, and I was fascinated because this guy he had no clue what it was that he was buying and selling. He was using it as a transfer technique. So today, if you want to transfer $100,000 from Wells Fargo to Citigroup, to a Citibank, um, you can wire it, but they're probably going to sit on that money for as long as two weeks to make sure that it's real, that it didn't come from a bounced check that hadn't bounced at the last bank yet. So they sit there on it. And what uh, a lot of folks on Wall Street are, have been doing is immediately buying a stable coin, transferring it to another location and selling the stable coin in a very quick transaction. In essence, making a transfer from one place to another, from one bank account to another at different banks. And it's, it's very effective for that. It's part of the reason why the Federal Reserve is looking at digitizing the dollar so that you can just do that without a middleman. You just move the money from one bank to the other and you know it's there because the it's digitized. They know who owns it. Um, and that that's probably coming. It's coming in the next few years. People are going to be upset about it because anytime there's a change to the currency, people get upset. People say the government's going to be able to track our money. Well, they're not getting rid of cash yet. And, and that's an important factor. But yeah, the government's going to be able to track money. If, if you have a digital currency, but they can do it anyway if they take a a warrant to a stable coin company, say this is the purchase and 
transfer, it's not as anonymous as people think it is. Um, just like cash isn't. If you look at the cash, there's numbers on that cash that identify what it is. It can be tracked. It's hard, but it can be tracked. So people are going to be upset about that. If you want to track, not have the government track you, the easiest way to do it is not make any money. Um, I, I, I don't recommend it. I, I don't recommend that at all. <laughs> I think there's better ways of approaching this. Uh, so anyway, this, that was a long conversation on private banking and how it kind of interconnects. Uh, and just to touch back on cryptocurrencies, people are shocked when I tell them it's just game money that can be bought and sold for real money. Because they say, what do you mean game money? The puzzle that's being solved, this is, I'm talking about the Bitcoin because it's the uh, first one, it's the most recognizable one. And it's one that had the white paper written about it that explains the actual process. There's a puzzle that must be solved. If it's taking too long to solve the puzzle, the puzzle automatically gets easier. The more people that are trying to solve the puzzle, the puzzle gets harder. Less people, it gets easier. So why? Well, because it's issuing bitcoins to the people that solve the puzzle and they want to make it competitive but the encryption has to take place and and the person that solves the puzzle gets to be the one that encrypts a block the encryption process has absolutely nothing to do with the puzzle so it's a game if you win the game you get a token you can use that token for Anything that that token can be used for. You could go to a a store that accepts that token and that's perfectly okay. But the token's value is fluctuating all over the place because people are using it as a speculative instrument. They think a lot of people will buy it and therefore it should be worth more. At some point, there's got to be a limit to that because we're not seeing this like consumer adoption on a broad scale of cryptos you can't go to a ford dealership or at least the vast majority of ford dealerships and buy a car with crypto um, because it's not being accepted you the many of the stores that were accepting crypto as a currency aren't anymore so we're seeing the reverse of adoption at some point cryptocurrencies either get adopted by everyone or at least a large group of people adopt them and use them as a currency or it's going to go away because that's the intended value of it and people are buying it based on that as the value and that's that's what it is it's pure belief if people believe it will be used as a currency um, then they won't make it sixty two thousand dollars of bitcoin because it can't really be used as a currency that way it's you're buying with fractional fractional pieces of a bitcoin if you want to buy a box of cereal, it's not a currency. So it's a commodity. And if it's a commodity, then it's not doing the thing that it was intended to do. All of that could change tomorrow if everybody says, hey, cryptocurrency is what we should be using. But I don't see that happening. So there's not likely to be a really, really long term on the crypto market. And on the stablecoin market, it's going to get regulated. They're going to have regulation in a banking capacity. It'll be private banking. And we've already got private banking. A lot of the paycheck loans are private banking. A lot that It's just another form of private banking. 
Now, out of all of that, and I've been talking on this subject for a while, out of all of it, what's good? What is something that's going to be sticking around for sure, no matter what opinion is? The blockchain. What is the blockchain? Well, it's what happens when you digitize and allow a group of people to see your records instead of just you to see your records. What does that mean? Well, that same thing, Wells Fargo to Citibank, if you're transferring $100,000. If Citibank can look at Wells Fargo's records and see that the money's there, that it's not a bounced check, that it's actually there, then the transfer can be instant. That's blockchain, where they can both see each other's encrypted ledger books. That's it. Now, Bitcoin has a peer-to-peer, no centralization blockchain. That works too, as long as everybody has an incentive to keep it encrypted. And, that, and this is the reality of the Bitcoin came about to support a new technology called blockchain. And the Bitcoin was an offshoot in a small part of the concept of what blockchain is. Blockchain is a new way of doing accounting. It's cloud accounting. And it's a lot better than double entry. So it, it allows the faster flow of assets from one place to another, a better accounting method if, like supply chain issues, if you're buying a, 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 an enameling uh, embroidering widget from a company and it's digitized in a system and you know where it is at any point, that's a form of blockchain, especially if you're buying it and you haven't bought it yet and you still know where it is because the other company that's manufacturing it is the one that's shipping it to you. If you can track it from the beginning to the end, like what Domino's did with pizza, when you order a pizza on an app, you can see who's cooking it all the way along. That's a form of blockchain. They've shared their ledger book with you. You can see the whole thing. That concept is going to be in every aspect of supply chain and money transfers for forever from here on until the next whatever comes to replace it. But double entry isn't replaced yet, and that came out in the, in the Renaissance. So as, as a concept, blockchain is amazing, and it's changed the vast majority of how things are done, how businesses are run, and it's going to continue to expand and be more amazing. The coin that's given because you solved a puzzle may be worth something in the future, but only if people use it as basically a collector's item. And that kind of comes back to the chanting mantra of the crypto community when they type in all caps, H-O-D-L, HODL, which is a misspelled hold. They're saying, don't sell, hold on to it. Don't, don't get rid of it, hold on to it. It's going to have value. That's the definition of a collector. It's a collector's item. So as long as people collect it, it will have value. If you look at it in that sense, it's a game token with value that as long as people are collecting it, then it makes sense that you have fluctuations in it. If you look at the fluctuations in the comic book market and the sports trading card market, you see, especially in the pandemic era, almost identical fluctuations in average values. Massive ups, massive downs, because people had extra money to collect with. Now, in the, in the Bitcoin area, in the crypto area, there's a lot more hype around it than when you're trading a, a 
Babe Ruth card. But the prices have been correlated. They've been very similar. And what's more, the tech market in stocks has been really correlated with the crypto market. So the same people that have been buying the tech market, the big tech stocks up and up and up because they had extra money, were also buying crypto because they had extra money. And if we look at when things are being bought, which causes their price to go up, and you graph it, which is what you do when you see a graph of any market, and you compare the two, man, there's a lot of similarities. So a lot of people were saying early on that Bitcoin would be a great hedge against inflation. We certainly haven't seen that. It's not stable enough to be a hedge against inflation. So anyway, that, that's my rather long-winded explanation of the crypto market. And now I'm going to tag another piece onto there that's kind of come out of the crypto market that isn't crypto, though it's referred to as crypto so often because it's stored on the blockchain. And that's NFTs, non-fungible tokens. That means something that's unique, non-fungible. Fungible means not unique, um, non means not. So you have a unique item. That's what NFT stands for. Unique item, a picture. And this doesn't look like anything except one thing to me. And that is when a company has a log and they're naming stars. And I'm sure anybody that's watched late night television in the 1990s and 2000s saw this Buy a star for your loved one. Name it after her. We will put it indelibly into our records that she, her name, or his name is now the name of that star. Is it a federal record? Is it like a government thing? No, no. Well, who, who checks that record to see what the, the star is called? Well, anybody that calls us. We're the company that has that. So basically, they're naming stars in their book that star, that star belongs to you in their book, and you've paid them money to write in their book that you own something. But nobody but them looks at that book to see who owns that star or what that star is named. <laughs> I mean, if you can make a living doing that and people enjoy that somebody bought a star or named a star after them in somebody else's book, it's kind of a cool concept. It's just not official in any way. And an NFT is the same. An NFT, you're buying a website address. It's not even the address. You don't own the address. You own the token that's at the address. And what is the website address? Well, that's actually rented out, but it's held by a company. And they say, this NFT belongs to you. But other NFT companies might have and often do have the same picture on their web page that someone else has purchased. And quite often, the original artist of that picture that's on multiple NFT sites being sold as unique, quite often the artist was not compensated. <laughs> that's just somebody grabbed it from the internet and sold it on the NFT market. Um, yeah, this, this gets into a realm where it, it, are there bubbles and scams that exist? This is kind of a legal scam. It's not illegal to, to name a star and write it in your book and have somebody pay you money to do it. It's not illegal. I mean, you should know that when you're buying that star that you're not really buying the star. You should, except they just told you you did. But 
they did in your book. <laughs> so an NFT falls in that category. Can you make money in crypto? Yes. I know people that have made fabulous amounts of money in crypto. I know people that have lost fabulous amounts of money in crypto. Massive amounts. I'm talking many millions have been lost or, or, or found in the crypto market. Does that mean that I think everybody should do this? Absolutely not. Uh, the people that did it think that they are brilliant. They really think that they are brilliant, but they bought at the right time and they sold at the right time. The reason why they were brilliant is they sold at the right time. The vast majority of people that bought crypto did not make money on crypto on the round trip. They bought it when the prices were just skyrocketing and now they're not. They're down, way down. But there's a lot of people that have held crypto a long time and their balances look really great. So crypto is pure gambling in my book. Now, is, is, is there some benefit to, that comes around the, the generation of crypto? Yeah, the blockchain's amazing, and I've, I've said that. But when you're buying something based on the expectation of whether or not someone else will buy it from you, rather than because it has some use or you're owning something that is producing something. It's the definition of gambling. If you're buying a trading card or a gold coin and you didn't add any value to it, you just had it in your hand. Or if it's a collectible, you didn't have it in your hand. You had it in a place that no one could touch it. Why should you make a profit on it? Now, if you understand the market and you've got it from an, an old man who didn't know what it was worth. That's called arbitrage. You're actually adding value by bringing it to a market that wants to buy it. But if you're just buying it from a big market and holding it and hoping that somebody else will buy it for you, from you for more, and you don't intend to do anything with it except sell it, you're not going to spend it to buy something. You're just going to sell it to try to make more money than what you paid for it. That is... That is the very definition of gambling. That is speculation. That is what most of that market is. And as Warren Buffett said, a big chunk of the tech market in stocks is the same thing. Uh, the, the meme market, uh, AMC, the movie theater, or GameStop, people bought it to hold it as a collectible and bought it because they were short squeezing. Uh, so somebody was or obligated to buy at some point in the future. So they knew the price had, could, if it stayed up, somebody would pay the money for it. But the actual GameStop company is not doing well. It's not at all. Uh, and even with all that new money coming into it, a lot of the executives left with these massive payouts, these massive, huge hundreds of millions of dollars of stock that they could sell and make huge amounts of money. They didn't add any profitability to the company. So at some point, that has to stop too. At some point, people will look at it and say, I don't want to just collect $100,000 worth of GameStop. At some point, I want to sell it to buy something else. And if the company's still not doing anything of value, people may not want to buy it. And that's kind of the round trip on the, the whole pandemic buy spree. We've talked about most of this hour. It's fascinating to me. Um, I'm about out of time for this week. I've had two hours of nearly uninterrupted talking, and I hope you enjoyed it. Um, for, for I, I know I wasn't listening. Uh, if you'd like to uh, talk off the air uh, to 
people that give fiduciary investment advice and advice on business and trusts and foundations. Um, we, we do that. We, that's what we do. Um, and we do this program as education. That's what we do for a living. If you'd like to talk to us off the air about that sort of stuff, um, that's the technical term. Uh, local number is 254-947-1111. Uh, there's voicemail during the weekend, real live people during the week. We don't have a phone tree. Uh, the toll-free number gets you to the same place is 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where we have newsletters that have gone back lots of years. You can go back and read what we had to say about different stuff as it was occurring and what our predictions were. Catch us when we're wrong. Uh, You can also sign up for the newsletter there. Uh, You don't have to sign up to read it on the site, but if you sign up, it gets sent to you. Uh, You can contact us through the contact form or email us directly at jeff or jake at tpwc.com or staff at tpwc.com if you want to get it to the staff. Um, You you can also use the contact form there. We have podcasts available wherever podcasts are, um, in the cloud somewhere. Bring your umbrella. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach. Thank you very much for listening.